Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and I'm Margie O'Mara. Welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. Uh, and this week we are doing a little bit of a special show in our normal interview block. Uh, we are coming to you live from Harvard University's Institute of Politics, where this weekend we're celebrating uh, the IOP's 50th anniversary. Uh, the Institute of Politics was founded uh, 50 years ago, uh, and it was founded as sort of a living memorial uh, to President Kennedy. The idea being uh, to have something here on campus at Harvard University uh, that really sort of brings the spirit of bipartisan um, of civic engagement uh, and keeps it alive um, and engages practitioners, those who are involved in the world of politics um, here on campus with the students uh, and has been doing that for five decades now. Uh, and we are very lucky to be joined by someone who does a lot of work with the IOP, uh, John Delavolpe. John is a, uh, he runs a firm called Social Sphere. Um, and I first came to know John because he is also uh, the mentor and I think driving force in some ways behind uh, the Institute of Politics Millennial Poll that comes out, I believe it now comes out twice a year. Is that right? That's right. Um, and so this is my first kind of encounter with John was through this poll because I was writing my master's thesis that would eventually kind of become the selfie vote. And uh, so the polling that came out of the IOP about young voters really set in motion for me personally, a lot of things in my career. And I'm, I'm very grateful, um, grateful to the IOP for having put that research together. So John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you back on campus. It's great to be here. Uh, so my first question to you is, tell us a little bit about the history of the Institute of Politics engagement in conducting survey research. Well, great. It goes back actually about 30, 32 semesters to the fall winter of 2000 when it was never my idea. In fact, we talk about the millennials today in the millennial poll. Um, I don't think the, 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 the term was even coined back in those days. It was the idea, not of me and not of anyone here at the IOP, but of two students. I'm hopeful, hopefully we'll, we'll see them uh, this weekend, but two 19-year-old sophomores, Aaron and Trevor, were uh, spent time on campus, and they were concerned about the fact that there are very few people who are actually interested in talking about politics. They looked at the 1996 uh uh, presidential exit polls, they saw that the youth vote was down by a significant margin, and they wanted to understand why. 
They recognize that so many young people, their friends on this campus and across the country, were involved in community service, but they came to the IOP and they asked if, if they could write a survey about trying to find the disconnect between service and politics. And back in those days, Senator Simpson was a director, Kathy McLaughlin was the executive director. I think it was their advice that we can probably find the funds to do a survey, but let's try to find someone to kind of guide the process here a little bit. Um, and I was fortunate enough to um, be one of the only pollsters in Boston at the time, so I got the job. Excellent. Well, and it's it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I, I say that you're, you're running the show there, but actually in many ways the students are also kind of running the show. I've had a number of, of interns that have come through firms that I've worked for or run who have had experience in the polling world as a result of, getting a chance to play pollster while an undergraduate yeah. in college. Tell me a little bit about that. And one of those is sitting in the corner of the room here, uh, Jonathan Chavez. I met him when he was 19 as a sophomore and now um, a partner in my firm and certainly kind of runs a, a lot of uh, – ran the poll back in, in the early 2000s and runs a lot of social sphere today. But the reason that I think this poll has um, been so relevant over the last 15 years or 16 years, it's these aren't – my questions, right? Those weren't the questions that a 30-year-old now or a 40-something-year-old comes up with. It's, it's I'm trying to tap into what young people are interested in learning about themselves and their generation. So every semester, I say, it's like a focus group for a little while. You know, what do you want to learn about? Some semesters foreign policy, some about religion, you know, who knows? Have there been crazy questions where you're like, no, we're not going to be able to ask that this time? Uh, Surprisingly, this is Harvard. So the questions I actually have to say no to are the ones, Margie, that are too focused on policy. Right, right. Right, where we have to like broaden it and say, this is something that we need, you know, 3,000 young Americans to have an opinion on. I wish they were a little bit crazy, but pretty serious. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you mentioned that this poll was started to study the un, the way this generation thinks about uh, civic life, civic engagement, public service. What have been the big trends you've seen over the last 15 or so years that you've been doing this poll? How has uh, the youth vote changed in that period of time? Well, it's uh, clear, clearly changed dramatically and, and never more dramatically than the first two polls or first three polls we took. The first one was 2000 before 9-11, right? When um, we saw that about about 60% of college students were engaged in some kind of community service. So we know from day one that young people care deeply about their country and their community. They just didn't care too much about politics. They didn't trust the system. They didn't think there was a difference between Democrats and Republicans. That Politics wasn't tangible. That changed, in, that changed in an instant, unfortunately, after, after 9-11. We saw an increase of political participation, and that, and, and that um, we saw was the kind of the foundation of, of the movement that was Obama in 2008. We were very fortunate to track that over the years. Um, but today, unfortunately, when you look back at the arc of the last 15 years, I think we're back to where we were in 2000, where we see engagement levels, we see trust in institutions, unfortunately, kind of on the pretty steady decline post the Great Recession, post-2009. I think there's a lot of um, blame to go around, both Democrats as well as Republicans. But unfortunately, um, I'm slightly kind of less optimistic than I was maybe five or six or ten years ago. Do you think that that's unique to millennials? I mean, trusting institutions dropping across the board, whether it's government, political parties, corporations, you name it, the press. Yeah, so so um, it's interesting. 2007, 2008, millennials, I think, and again, millennials, largest generation in the history of America, 25% of, um, of American population. I'm focused on 18 to 29-year-olds, so they are members of the millennial generation. But I don't think that the outliers, I think you're right, I don't think that they are the outliers that they were back in 2008, when two-thirds of them voted for Obama in 2008. And now 
by and large, for good and for bad, they look a lot like the rest of America. And I think that's mostly bad because I think a lot of the, the optimism has, has waned. Now, that raises for me a, a big question. I, as somebody who also studies this, I see a lot of headlines that will talk about the millennial generation, young voters, and sometimes they're pretty negative. It'll have things about this generation being very self-absorbed, not connected to issues, not caring about anything, but are they using the right Instagram filter on the picture that they just right. posted? People and don't I, like working with them. They like, what's don't like, like working with them. They all just run around on their hoverboards looking for free snacks, and what's the deal here? And and, and I, 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 I push back against that. One, I mean, my experience being a fellow here, I was working with kids every day who right. were incredibly impressive and phenomenal and defied all of those stereotypes incredibly. But I know that being here at Harvard, we're in kind of a special place. This is uh, this is not a, a statistically, you know, representative, representative sample. sample of millennials, perhaps. Um, but I, I do think that you also see in the data that you all have put out that this is not a generation that just thinks, whatever, none of this matters. Even if we've seen some of these things declining, um, that it's rather that you have millennials who look at things like, how am I going to solve problems in the world just through a different lens than older generations did. I think um, I certainly learn on campus more from them than I than they do for me, without question. But um, I think one of the most significant findings was back in the earliest days when I asked folks, I think it's on a scale from zero to ten, if if um, a friend or family member invited you to a political rally and event, would you go? Right? Would you volunteer? Would you do a variety of other political activities? And folks actually said yes. You know, not you know, maybe maybe thirty percent, forty five percent would say eight, nine, or ten on ten point mm-hmm. on a zero to ten scale, which are tens of millions of young Americans. And the lesson from this poll is they do want to become engaged. But I think if you know anything about this generation, sometimes you just need to ask them, right? Sometimes you need to recognize them. I, I talk about identify who they are, right? Empower them and then engage them. And I think if you do those three things, that you can get far more participation um, in anything that we choose. And you can see that, I think, in this campaign. You can see this on the Democratic side for sure. You know, I think some of the Republican candidates tried a little bit more than others. But I think there's a lot of evidence going back for a long time that if you empower and engage young people um, and, they, and they believe in you um, and they have faith in you, that they can do some pretty special things. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, it's just a self-reinforcing cycle where if younger voters don't vote at the same rate, then politicians will be less likely to reach out to them because that's a less efficient use of their time, and then right. they're not asked to participate, and then they're going to be less likely to participate. That's something you definitely see. And then the other thing that I would note is the coverage of millennials, it, millennial polling, like you said, could be so reductive. And one of my favorites was, and this was in the New York Times, millennials hate paying for Wi-Fi at hotels, you know, like everybody else who's like, oh, yes, I'd love to pay for Wi-Fi. So <laughs> I don't mind, you know, click. And so like the, that kind of like it, it, you see it in coverage of polling generally, like all women think this, all Latinos think this, all millennials think that. I think the millennial coverage sometimes can be the worst out of worst offender of all the polling <laughs> coverage. Now, as somebody who does polling on millennials, what are the challenges that you've found over the last 15 years about how you reach them to ask them their opinions in the first place. It That's was, a changing landscape. It, it was. So, um, yeah, for history, so 15 years ago, um, we started actually talking only to college students. It was 18 to 24 college students using telephone directories from college campuses. 
right? So it was not unheard of that we could actually dial a dorm room on a college campus across America, have a, a young person pick up the phone and spend 15 minutes with us on the telephone, right? <laughs> and I think some of the earliest, right, 15 years ago, and the earliest, I think some of the earliest cell phone polling was done with our project because um, the telephone directories during those early years, if you were a student with a cell phone, you would list that in the in directory. So we did that for about three or four or five years. Um, and then we switched to kind of an online methodology, which is we just had a conversation earlier, which incredibly controversial, incredibly controversial. You know, um, folks who call us on a regular basis for comment about millennial polling wouldn't go anywhere near the poll for a couple of years while we were migrating um, online. We were among the first universities and the first institutions to do that because if you wanted to talk to young people, that's where you needed to go. So we've migrated online, and then over the, since about the last five or six years, we use an address-based sampling methodology through knowledge, the Knowledge Networks panel via GFK. Um, it's a government academic. We can't use it for partisan purposes, but I think far and away it is one of the most rigorous you know, um, ways to conduct this survey. And now the recent challenge, we had a meeting with our students just, uh, this past Monday, is how we need to think about the questions that we ask now on the cell phone. Right, because it's online, folks can take it on their cell phone. So we have to be cognizant of um, of questionable length and some of these other factors as we design the survey. Right. Well, now Pew is moving to seventy five percent of their interviews. I think are on cell phone now, or that's their goal. And their younger their polls of younger people are almost exclusively online. So they, you know, so they're really clearly moving. Yeah, and I, a lot of the industry has. The biggest, from a, methodolo- from a methodological point of view, one of the most interesting findings when we moved from telephone to the Internet was we actually were able to expand the base of young people we were talking to. And the, the one question that changed more than the margin of error was uh, about overall level of political participation. People were less likely to participate in politics taking the online survey. Professor King from the Kennedy School would remind me that if I call a college student in their dorm, they pick it up, they talk to me for 20 minutes. That's a political act. You know, it's much easier to do it over the course of maybe a couple of different sessions whenever you want to online. So I think it's by far a, a better methodology. Now, your work at your work is not just here at the IOP. You also have a firm that does a lot of work for various corporate clients and such. What are the things that your tell us a little bit about your firm and, and the sort of special way you all approach research? Because I think it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, thanks. So um, the the kind of the idea from the firm came from the from the insights and the research here at the Institute of Politics. But essentially, I realized fairly early um, seems that in order to do my job well as a pollster to understand public opinion, I needed to do more than just ask people what they thought. Right, polls and focus groups and those sorts of things were getting more difficult. Yet there was a a, a, a a new set of data being recorded online, right, through blogs and comment boards and Facebook and Twitter. That if I could both understand what people are, are saying when they when I ask them a question, but also observe what they're doing online, those two pieces to, for me together could pro- provide a kind of a more complete picture of public opinion. And that's what we're doing. We're building algorithms to mine Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms, and now building software to present those results in real time. Right. I think that's useful because asking people where they get their information, asking people how often they talk about something on Facebook or even where they heard something. I mean, this is something I'm sure you've both heard in focus groups where you say, well, where did you get that news? If they say on Facebook, you don't know if that means... 
an article that someone posted on Facebook or just a rant that someone posted on Facebook, or maybe they don't even, they didn't even see it on Facebook. They saw it somewhere else. I mean, you have really have no idea. So well, the New York times on Facebook, right? Exactly. Right. Right. right exactly. <laughs> that came up in their feed. You have no idea. So right. it's hard sometimes to, that's one of those things that's very, very difficult media consumption and media usage. Um, self-report is very hard. One of the questions we always like to ask on this podcast when we have somebody who's in the field is, how did you get into this in the first place? What was sort of your career journey that got you oh, into the world of polling? That's a great question. Well, um, I realized I couldn't be a lawyer. I was always an advocate. <laughs> I always wanted to be an advocate and uh, was not going to make it as a as a. We don't as have any lawyer. lawyers in the room here, right. do we? Not, I'm sure not. not I'm sure there aren't any. able to do that. Um, and I actually thought, I, so I worked in you know uh, a lot of different campaigns after college, and I thought I was going to be a media consultant. Right. So um, I was an intern to Tad Devine. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. You were my husband's business partner. Exactly. So um, I was an intern for him on the Dukakis campaign. Ah, I was in college. Yeah. Um, and then worked for him in a couple different races and thought I was going to choose a path of being a media consultant, be more creative. And uh, a couple pollsters, I was uh, working on a campaign. I was, I guess, pretty good at writing research memos that it could turn into research questions and two pollsters. Mark Penn and Doug Schoen, um, um, who you probably know, um, asked me to uh, to work at that firm, Penn and Schoen, back in 1991, 92. The firm had about a dozen people tops. I covered Doug, Mike Berland, um, who you guys also know, covered Mark, and um, that's how I figured it out. I was on a panel this morning with Mark Penn. The Harvard Political Analytics Conference was going on today as well, and there was a whole panel that we had about uh, understanding the primary. And I think Mark and I had a little bit of a different view about Donald Trump's uh, likely potential success within the GOP primary. <laughs> and uh, though we, I think we were in agreement about his potential success in a general. But that's funny. It's, this is a very small world. It is. I was lucky enough to reconnect with him just recently as well. And we, we talked about some of those old stories, but also kind of our disagreement about the impact the millennials had in 08 in the primary campaign, <laughs> which uh, I've told that story many times. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, and then how do you feel about the future of, of polling in the industry? Do you feel optimistic? I mean, a lot of folks that we talk to, we get very divergent opinions. Folks who've listened to the show have probably heard some folks that we've interviewed feeling very, very pessimistic about the ability to really capture public opinion. Uh, Chuck Todd in particular from Meet the Press, if folks go back and listen to that episode, very pessimistic. And then other folks say, you know, it's only going to get easier. Technology is getting better. And, you know, the, the, the worries about polling's death are really far exaggerated. I guess it's the it's the definition of the question of public opinion. So I, I, I think about public opinion very differently than the horse race headlines, as as we all do, right? And I think that um, we'll be very successful as an industry um, in the future understanding what public opinion is. For example, um, I care less about whether there's a seven-point or a ten-point lead in Wisconsin for some candidate and much more about the question – one of the most interesting questions I think we ever asked last semester was, do you believe the American dream is alive or dead? And half of the members of the largest generation in the history of America believe it's dead. Like That's, to me, public opinion, understanding how that relates to this campaign. Those kinds of things I think we'll be able to figure out. Whether or not we've become more accurate with a horse race within a couple of points is kind of less of a concern for me and, and more troubling. That actual uh, that that remark about is the American dream alive or dead? We actually talked on our show this That's past right. week about a poll that Quinnipiac did, where they asked people, "Do you believe uh, believe or not believe the American dream is dead?" Mm. But for half of the sample, the respondents got asked, "Donald Tr Trump says." The American dream is dead. Do you believe or not believe this statement? And then they presented cross tabs based on 
if if you just are asked, do you believe the American dream is dead versus Donald Trump says the American dream is dead, do you believe or not believe that statement? Um, that the results are completely different. And then if you look at Trump supporters versus non-supporters, oh, course, yeah. you find that people who support Trump actually don't think the American dream is dead. But then if you say Donald Trump says the American dream is dead. Maybe it is dead. Suddenly there you get like 68% who say, yes, absolutely. The American dream is dead. So, And Trump opponents are like, wait a second. It's not dead. No, the American dream is alive. We were just kidding. Anymore. Yeah. So the, the Trump effect, which was actually true no matter what, no matter what Trumpian policy or utterance you tested it had that same trump effect so john my, my last question for you from the from from me before we open this all up to the audience uh is i know you guys have a poll that will be coming out somewhat soon yes uh, but you can't say anything about what any of the results are right yet right because it's still- i can't i can't it's gonna be it's gonna be released this month okay i'm uh it's almost done okay um i'm gonna tell you a little bit about what it's it's fascinating and we're gonna talk about um talk about socialism we're going to talk about capitalism we're going to talk about feminism patriotism so that's going to be interesting that we're going to talk i love isms yeah (laughs) i'm a democrat we love them so that's going to be in terms of how young people think about some of those isms that's going to be that's going to be terrific (laughs) we're obviously going to have a lot of uh information on on the horse race uh on really kind of unpacking trump because when we started the last we this cycle a year ago um we did the democratic uh, horse race and Bernie Sanders had, guess how many percentage points? One. One year ago, he had 1% of the vote. We did it, the poll again in November, December, he had 41%. So we'll revisit a lot of those sorts of things. Um, and we'll talk about trusted institu- institutions, those sorts of things. So coming out soon. Wonderful. Well, Great. stay tuned, listeners. You're going to want to hear about this. And we promise as soon as it comes out, we'll be talking about it here on the show. Uh, so now I want to open it up to questions from the audience. If you have a question, put your hand up. And then when you give your question, if you say your name and then your affiliation, if you're ever a fellow here at the IOP, anything like that, uh, and then we'll repeat your question back into the mic so that uh, our listeners can also hear what you had to say. Potato chips. It's a good question. I mean, there are a lot of similarities, right? There are a lot of similarities in, ter- in terms of the questions that, you know, looking at favorability or ratings or traits and, and the flow of a survey from the broader to the specific. Um, I would say that there are some standards, industry standards of what's important in politics, and there are different sets of industry standards in marketing. So for politics, you want to look at favorability. There are a variety of traits. How descriptive is this? And everybody has, every pollster has a slightly 
different variation on how they ask that, but those basic questions are very similar across polling shops. And part of it is John just briefly illustrated people move around. So there's a lot of learning because there's this finite number of shops. So they, they kind of learn techniques from each other in the corporate brand world. They have somewhat different sets of standards. So sometimes they'll want net promoter, like how much or how likely are you to tell somebody about this, which you may not have in exactly the same way in politics, or how likely are you to advocate for this or talk about it on Facebook or share this or, you know, is it going to change your purchase intent, right? So there's a slightly, you know, there's a little bit of a difference there and maybe a little bit less of a concern about favorability about a brand it because they care more about whether you're going to buy it. So it, they're slightly different, um, but there are a lot of, you know, for sure, a lot of similarities. So the question was, uh, oh, if you are, that's okay. The question was, if you're doing a poll and, uh, you're trying to study political attitudes versus perhaps corporate or branding type questions, how do you do things differently? Uh, I think where I begin is the audience that you're trying to talk to is going to be a little bit different. So in a, a brand survey, you want kind of a, a pretty broad audience. You know, you're looking at a survey of adults, for instance, uh, you know, Amer- adults in America, um, or, you know, millennials in America. When you're doing political research, a lot of times you'll want to narrow that a bit more so that you're just looking at registered voters. And then within that, you know who the likely voters are. Um, so, you know, you'll see some polls that start off with all adults, but then will shrink who they're asking certain political questions to. And I think that's one of the big challenges in our industry is increasingly as response rates decline, how do you make sure that the people you're surveying match up with the people who are actually going to show up at the polls during a particular election? Um, how do you not just get the population estimate right, but how do you know what your population even is? Uh, so for trying to figure out how popular Beyonce is with millennials, you know, I could do a Google consumer survey that very quickly and inexpensively could give me good data on what people 18 to 34 think about Beyonce and her latest new song and is she ever going to put it out on Spotify? <laughs> Just asking. Uh, and, and, but then for a political survey, you know, I might want to be doing something with a voter file there so I know specifically who I'm talking to. And every, and almost everybody's moved online aside from some of the, you know, a lot of political work. I mean, political work still does live calls with a combination. And when I say political, I mean candidate work. Political organizations have often moved a lot of their work online. Corporate work, they are, you know, they've, that ship has sailed. They've moved online unless there's a really very strong, compelling need to do something with live calls or cell phones. Um, my name is Jennifer Jordan, and I ran the forum at the Institute in the late 80s. Um, I have been fascinated and somewhat horrified by the, the level of and ferocity of Hillary's negatives. And I wonder if there's a way to tap into the why of why her negatives are so vicious sometimes. And so, you know, almost personally, I don't want to answer the question for you. It just, I would love to get into the mindset of why her negatives are just as atrocious. So the, the question that was asked is, uh, why are Hillary Clinton's unfavorables as intense as they are? Why do f- negative feelings about Hillary Clinton seem to be fairly intense among those who, who are not, not favorable toward her? When we've taken a look at this question, you know, within at least the context of the Democratic primary, most Democrats actually really like Hillary Clinton. They may like Bernie Sanders more, um, but by and large, she does not have a serious favorability problem within her own party. Um, but when you ask about a variety of different characteristics, you know, do you think that Hillary Clinton is strong? Even voters in the other party will typically say, 
Yeah, she's strong's a word I'd use to describe her. Um, but then you get into other characteristics like trust. Do you believe she's someone you can trust? And as you move away from kind of the leadership and policy position type qualities into more of the sort of personal character stuff, that's where I think you begin to see increasing levels of unfavorability, especially among those politically disinclined to like her in the first place. So there was a poll this week that came out from Fairleigh Dickinson that was really trying to get at the gendered component of feelings toward her. And it, because otherwise it's hard to really know. You can't ask people, do you have a problem with a woman candidate? Because they'll say no. Um, and even if they say yes, they're saying yes because they're, they're thinking of Hillary Clinton and they don't like her because they're a Republican or for whatever reason. Um, so it's hard to separate out gender sometimes when you have an end of one of Hillary Clinton. Um, but this poll was fascinating because they, ha- they asked everybody a question about the household income how income is broken up in their household. How much does a husband make or and your wife make in your household of everybody? Some people got that question at the beginning of the survey. Some people got it at the end. So it's a very subtle way of how they phrase it, elevating the worry of gendered threat or like calling attention to changing gender norms. And in the Trump versus Clinton horse race, the people who got that question first, it really made a difference. So for men, it made them more likely to vote for Trump if they got that question first than if men got that question at the end of the survey. Now, for women, they were more likely to vote for Clinton when they got that question first, but not as by such a large margin as the men. The effect was much larger among men. Now, in the Sanders versus Trump, there was no difference in whether you got that question in the beginning or the end. So that is fascinating, right? That's just New Jersey, though. So maybe there's something... <laughs> I say this as someone from New Jersey and kind of they're all they all have kind of some ties to that area. Right. Who knows? Right. What will happen if that's broader? And also, who knows what would happen if we didn't have Trump, who's got his own gender problems that don't have anything to do with Clinton or Sanders, where he is incredibly unpopular with women. He has a gender gap that's unprecedented in within the Republican primary, where Republican women support him by a lower margin than Republican men do. He has a lot of problems with independent women relative to independent men. And none of that has, that's irrespective of Clinton versus Sanders, doesn't matter. So I don't know how all that shakes. I guess it's, we still don't quite know, but it does seem like there is a gendered component to it. I also, at the same time, think that we have a lot more of a heated conversation about gender around Hillary Clinton than the press that sometimes can magnify the perception of intensity that may be there with voters at large. So especially, again, in the primary where, you know, I think there's a lot more talk about sexism in the primary than maybe actually exists. You know, it's hard. It's hard to measure, you know, because our we our gauge is what the press, how the press covers it. Uh, I'm David Yepsen. I was a fellow here in the spring of 2008. I'd like this for any of you or all of you to comment on. John, you mentioned sort of difference, the, the broad spectrum of millennials, older millennials and younger millennials. Uh, what, what other differences, you, you talk about the optimism Factor. Are there other differences any of you see in older millennials and younger millennials? We tend to paint it with a pretty broad brush. Um, so yes and no. So yes. So, so you want to repeat oh, the question? So the, the the next question that was posed is whether we see any differences within the millennial generation, given that it's such a broad definition. Um, if we look at sort of subgroups of millennials, how do they differ from one another? Um, so uh, thanks, David, for that question. The the first cut, I look at this as the millennials who came of age 
during the Obama campaign, the Obama movement of 2008. Those young people are in their late 20s and early 30s, right? Their first political memory, uh, well, their first significant political memory, arguably, would be 9-11. They were in high school um, and remember that quite well. They also remember rallying around the flag after September 11th but being pretty disappointed in the um, in the execution of those two wars, Katrina, et cetera, and were the heart and soul of the Obama campaign. Um, those millennials are sl- slightly more uh, democratic, more supportive of Obama today than their, quote, younger brothers and sisters who came of age, who for, for them, 9-11 might have been in grade school, right? So it had less of a potential of an, of an impact. Um, however, the most significant impact, I don't think, was 9-11, was the Great Recession, right? When they saw friends, neighbors, parents lose lose jobs, lose positions, they might have gone to a different college because of the recession, those sorts of things. So I think understanding how each half of that generation have came of age is the first way in which I look at it. And then, unfortunately, other differences within the generation, you see a lot of differences by race, unfortunately, like the rest of America. Um, you know, the Obama approval rating has been between 75 and 82 percent consistently among young African-Americans. Among um, young white Americans in our survey, it started around 50, and now it's in the low to mid-30s, I think, right? So significant difference by race and also by education status. Uh, getting back to the American dream question that we asked, again, that was an idea not for me, but from one of our students, um, there was really not a significant statistical difference based on race. The question was actually posed by a young African-American who said the American dream is dead because I'm black in America. But the data showed slight difference based on race, but a much more significant difference based on level of education. Right, Those who are in high school grad, no college, or community college were far more pessimistic. So unfortunately for me, even with this generation, the same, you know, patterns exist that separate the other older generations as well. And when, when we think politically about the makeup of this generation, what a lot of people don't realize is just how diverse the millennial generation is. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about how, you know, I talk a lot about how Republicans need to improve their standing with millennials and need to improve their standing with Latino voters and need to improve their standing with and on and on. And these things are all related. Um, Mitt Romney actually won young white voters by a seven point margin. But because the millennial generation is so diverse, he goes on to lose the youth vote overall by 23 points. And that's because you have fewer than six out of 10 uh, of those voters under the age of 30 in the last election who were white non-Hispanic. It's, and it's, uh, the diversity of the generation is only increasing. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is, is a, an interesting and unfortunate that there's a division there. Um, but certainly whenever you're thinking about millennials, understanding that, that, Almost half of them are not white, non-Hispanic. Raymond Strother, retired Democratic media consultant. Through the years, after about and a fellow in sorry, fellow in best experience of my life. But in my last fifty Dow groups, I've stopped believing in them. I found that I could manipulate them easily. Because I thought life and death, you put a dial in someone's hand and gave them life or death on pieces of a television spot. Now Frank Lutz is making a lot of money doing these on CBS. But can you defend focus groups? I think it's the most overused and, and uh, unreliable of all this. 
So this is a good and provocative question. Uh, we've just been asked, can we defend the use of focus groups and dial tests as a way, dial test, dial test focus groups specifically as a way to test ads? John, do you have a thought on that? I am here because of dollar groups. So okay. uh, can I tell you my dollar yes, group story? Yes, yes. dollar group story? So uh, I le- after I left Penn and Show, uh, I wanted to move back to Boston, and I took a, uh, I'm a young guy, and I took a $40,000 loan out. Uh, to buy a hundred dials, right? And I walked them um, to um, every office in Washington D.C. And I was lucky enough to uh, to run to Stan Greenberg and did lots of dial groups for Stan Greenberg in the 1992 campaign um, for Bill Clinton. We tested a lot of things with dial groups. That's a long time ago, right? Um, and I don't think I've used them in the last decade or maybe 15 years, right? Um, um, so. Same technology that we see. So I think that there is, um, again, lots of ways to collect information, but the use of dial testing in terms of putting 50 people in a laboratory and moving the dial back and forth, I think there are kind of more modern ways to do that, frankly. I will defend the use of a focus group. Because, okay, so there's a difference between a dial group, the dial group and, and, and a focus group. And then, by the way, there are a lot of methodologies now online on Microsoft and other places where you can do dial groups basically with large samples, um, uh, in your living room at home. But that's my perspective. Right. We used to get one of the like we we used to get a moment when there was a you know when we when a campaign when a candidate would be would be banging on the table and that would increase right and, uh, increase the number and certain in certain in certain words but the use of the dial the dial testing I think is when somebody will give an hour long speech right and find the the two or three segments within that speech that resonate with certain groups I think that's a good use of it but testing a thirty second spot. Animatic, probably not the best. Right, because then, you know, there is a challenge, right, where you want to overemphasize this very small difference. Something can go up, you know, three points. You're like, okay, well, then, you know, the the candidate's got to wear that blue shirt and say exactly that. We have to use it exactly that way. I think there's a tendency to kind of, you know, over-test, right, with some of that, while some other ways like – uh, testing things online where people may be at home, maybe it's a little bit more natural of a setting. There's ways to test creative where people are clicking on individual words and then you're really asking them to focus on the words as opposed to a variety of different images. Um, the one good thing about dial groups, though, as opposed to focus groups, if you have a room full of people in a focus group and you're asking them about advertising, it's very easy for someone to say, excuse me, I don't really like political advertising when every time I see an ad, I vote for the other candidate instead because I just hate political ads. And good testing means kind of sidestepping that very common answer. And also, but it also, there's a tendency in a focus group for that to poison the room for them. Someone says, well, I hate ads. It's very hard for someone to say, well, I like ads. You know, I, that's the only place I get my information is from 30 second commercials. So it's hard. Sometimes that can, your group can get a little bit off track if you're have a, you know, where you're testing negative and contrastive in a focus group setting. Hi, Chris Corey. Um, how much is Twitter like a dial test? 
Ooh, uh, so our next question, a good follow-up, is how much is Twitter like a dial test? So I'll jump on this one, and I'm sure John will want to take this one, too. Uh, so I'm a big fan of using Twitter to understand how people are looking at live events and things like that. So again, you wouldn't Twitter as a way to study an ad would be kind of odd, but um, you can look at... Uh, so here, I'll give you an example. So my firm has this whole dashboard we built um, to try to analyze what people are saying on Twitter. Now, if you look at all of Twitter, you're going to get a lot of Beyonce and a lot of One Direction. You're going to get very... Very little politics. But you can look at subsamples of people on Twitter who look like the type of people who are in your audience. You know, we found we had an algorithm that identified about, you know, a thousand or so liberal activists, a thousand or so conservative activists. And then we could monitor what they were talking about during something like the State of the Union. So then you can see, okay, President Obama just made this big statement about trade. And you can see that the inside the beltway people that we were following, like it didn't register with them at all. Like they didn't, they could have cared less that we we were talking about trade. Um, And the conservative activists didn't really, it didn't register with them either. Not really anything. The liberal outside the beltway activists, trade was like the big spike in what they were talking about. And so in a way you can kind of see like hints of this outside the beltway, Trumpism changing, you know, you can't know for sure that that's what that means, but that's like an interesting canary in the coal mine. You can look and see, okay, I've got this group of the thousand people on Twitter who look most like Chuck Todd and Mark Halperin. And then I've got a thousand people on Twitter who look most like Eric Erickson um, or, you know, or not Eric Erickson, you know, grassroots conservative activists out there outside the beltway. What are the issues that resonate with them most? Uh, And that's what I think Twitter is valuable for. And because you've got that, you know, second by second analysis, you can see, was there a particular part at the State of the Union where everybody freaked out and there was, and you can generally guess that if there's a big spike among conservatives, then it's something conservatives didn't like. And if there's a big spike among liberals, that it might be something liberals did like. So sometimes you've got to like go through and actually read what the tweets are. You know, it's qualitative and quantitative together. But I think it's a very, very valuable tool if we can harness uh, harness it the right way so that we're not just picking up a little bit of noise in the mix of Beyonce in one direction. And after the first Democratic debate, the press and the polls, when asked who won, it was very clear Clinton won. But if you looked at... Uh, the number of new Twitter followers, number of searches, number of people who then donated money online. It, that was a different story. That was, you know, Sanders because he had a different measure of success. He was introducing himself to folks who were maybe watching him for the first time or learning a little bit more about him. But only through looking at all of that together were you able to get a sense of what the actual reaction was from people who were watching him. I think um, certainly kind of a leading indicator of where influencers are. Um, Twitter is incredibly helpful. Um, one of the uh, the new techniques that we've been using is a is a product called Topic Data, which is a Facebook product, mm-hmm. which um, allows us to analyze aggregated anonymized Facebook posts. And what that means is that we can see analysts can see data um, analysts can can see what people um, are posting. Um, based on their gender, based on their age, based on their location. Um, so that um, allows us to see, again, and sometimes in real time, what people choose to kind of um, talk about on Facebook. Um, we can never see who you are in, as an individual, but like a crosstab, we can see X percent of Hillary supporter, X percent of people who posted something positive about Hillary were female or this age group or live on this side of the Mississippi River, et cetera. 
and also kind of what they're sharing, the tone of what they're sharing. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. I think that's topics like this, the, the analytics around Twitter and Facebook and other things to me is the future of our business. Frank? Frank Barakoff is a fellow in the fall of 2014. Great class. Great fellows <laughs> class. Big fan. <laughs> Back many, many years ago when I was actively involved in party politics, I wouldn't pay any attention to a poll unless there were at least a sample of 1,000 or 1,200. This may have come from Dick Worthland, who did all my polling at the state level and national level over the years. I look now at the papers, and there's a poll every day in one of the newspapers. And some of them are 300 sample or 400 sample. Has the standards changed as to what you really can uh, call a reliable poll, depending upon the size? So the question we just got was from uh, from Frank Ferenkopf, one of my fellow fellows from fall 2014. And he asks uh, that back in the past, it was sort of expected uh, to have a poll that would have a sample of 1,000, 1,200. And now we're seeing polls pushed in the media that have samples of three or 400. Is that acceptable? I think what's changed is media budgets have changed. Polling has become much more expensive at the same time that media companies have less and less money to spend. Um, so in Make it, and Frank notes that, that they're making a lot on the debates. Frank is part of the uh, bipartisan uh, commission to uh, to handle the presidential debates, so he knows quite General well. Election, no. General election, not these primary ones. Uh, I think you, you have a lot of just media companies that they say, well, we'll do a 1,000 voters nationwide, but then within that we've got 300 Republicans, and then within that we've got 250 likely Republican primary voters, and they'll just look at that. And sometimes people don't realize the margin of error on that is huge. You're looking at margins of error that that make the results really hard to interpret with any kind of certainty. But nonetheless, reporters who sometimes have a very basic understanding of polling will take those results and run with them. Oh my gosh, Ted Cruz is surging because he's gone up six points over the last poll, when really that's still within margin of error. Um, so I do agree with you that it is troublesome that so much of the data we use now to guide our public understanding of of what's going on in the race comes from subsamples that even if perfectly executed are still, you know, they don't have the same statistical power that that you might want. Um, but with that said, I, I still don't think polling is in complete crisis. A lot of folks have talked about the idea that, you know, well, is the polling industry completely destroyed? Um, or, or do we have to start from scratch after many of the high-profile polling misses in 2012? And we've always been on this show really positive about the industry. That for the most part, yes, you've got mistakes like what happened in Britain. You've got mistakes, yes, like what happened in Michigan. That's kind of weird and hard to understand. But if you look at the track record of most of the polls throughout this primary, it actually hasn't been so horrible. It's It's been pretty good. Um, so polling is not yet dead, um, but it's certainly the case that we need to come up with new methodologies as things continue to evolve. And that things like bigger sample sizes is just sort of a good uh, good best practice for folks to always have in mind. Uh, it, it was really a challenge when you had that first Fox Republican debate, which they were basing on a polling average. And so you had all these different outlets trying to have their poll be part of the average and come close to the uh, to the cutoff. And if they had a thousand interview survey nationwide, and then from that they had three or four hundred Republicans, then you're really talking about a couple of respondents making the difference between 
which Republican candidate was going to be the 10th candidate on the stage back when there were 17 candidates. And that was really seemed like a terrible use of polling. And you had people just anxiously waiting the last poll to ca- calculate their own averages. And uh, Lee Maringoff from um, Marist said, you know, we're not going to do a poll. We don't want our poll to be part of that. But then, you know, because it was making people do crazy things, he said it made people do like crazy ads and gimmicks and stunts just to like convince one respondent out there somewhere so they could be, you know, so Mike Huckabee or whoever could be Lindsey Graham could be number 10. Um, and uh, but then after that, Lee Marigoff was like, OK, well, now I've had their chance now. So I'm not we're not we don't need to do that for future debate cutoffs because um, because now they're they have an airing. So that was just, you know, there was that one moment where there was a lot of focus on are we using polling correctly? And then once that moment was over, it seemed like that concern kind of went away for a while. Um, my question uh, surrounds people who identify as independent voters, and I was just curious, to what extent um, do millennials identify as independents, and is that in any way driving this growing trend for uh, people not to identify as So our next question is, to what extent do millennials identify as independents, and how much is that driving this trend toward people not wanting to identify with either party. Uh, millennials are definitely on the forefront of that trend. I believe it's at least half of millennials don't identify with a political party at all. John, I will let you take it away from here. Yeah, uh, thanks, Krista. I think it's the parties that are driving the trend towards independence, <laughs> frankly. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's been a consistently a plurality um, throughout the last 15 or 16 years, and we've done a lot of work and actually, in our spring survey, we do a lot of work on ideology um, and typology, and we try to kind of define who the middle 40 or 50 percent are. And I will tell you just very quickly that they break down into a couple of interesting buckets, one of which is the importance of religion. So you have a libertarian streak within this within the independence, but you also have a what we call kind of the religious center, where you have a lot of African Americans, you have a lot of Hispanics. Um, who are fairly religious when it comes to, um, and, and fairly conservative when it comes to some social issues like uh, a, a abortion and, the, and those issues, those issues uh, uh, same-sex marriage. But on the other side, they're very liberal and progressive when it comes to protecting the environment and health care for all. So to me, that's one of the most interesting segments in American politics, this religious center. It's about probably 25% of the independent vote and have been the real swing. They split evenly back in 2004, um, and Obama won them overwhelmingly in 2008 and 2012. And I think to the extent, um, certainly kind of young Hispanics, depending on who the nominee is, maybe not this time, could still be up for grabs among the, the youth cohort. Yeah, Gallup is showing a record high number of folks identifying as independents. So that's overall trend. That's not even just millennials. And I think part of it is, I mean, not all those independents are really, truly up for grabs. Some of them are Democrats. Some of them are Republicans. Some of them are really very low information, so they call themselves independents because they're not totally sure. And then there's a variety of folks in between. And, um, you know, I think there was a time when, say, I'm part of the blue team, I'm part of the red team was an identification that people like to have. I think now people think it says something better about them if they say that they're an independent, that that's a, you know, a badge of honor when maybe perhaps being a Democrat or Republican was a badge of honor in times past. So we've got time for one more question. Uh, I'd like to go back to the American Green issue if we can. My name is Angus Duncan, and I'm going to date myself by telling you that I was 
affiliated with the institute in its first year on campus. I was an undergraduate. Wow. I was about seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the American dream used to be a candidate could stand up in front of an audience and say, you know, vote for me, elect me, and you're you'll be better off for the next four years. And by and large, they were, even though it had little or nothing to do with the candidate. Um, starting in 2008, maybe a little bit earlier, um, you still had candidates like Obama saying, vote for me, you know, life will get better, you know, um, elevate your hopes. Um, and, you know, and eight years later, um, there's a fairly substantial disenchantment with uh, Obama among non-black voters. Um, you could argue that Bernie Sanders and maybe even Donald Trump are punching the same button, vote for me and life will be better, don't vote for me and, you know, life will continue to go sideways. And it probably will continue to go sideways, you know, even if one or the other one was elected. So are we in a kind of a vicious cycle where, where the American dream you know, you know, is spiraling down, um, and, and the more the candidates promise it won't, and then fail to deliver the faster it spirals? So our question was, uh, with a lot of politicians who are out there, uh, you know, have historically always been able to tell voters, vote for me and I will deliver on the American dream. And then over the last uh, almost 10 years or roughly 10 years or so, that that promise has started to ring a little bit hollow to voters. Um, and so are we in, in sort of a vicious cycle where politicians will con- be continuing to make promises that they have absolutely no way of keeping because their force is greater than than them in their office that would would determine those things. I think that's that's a big issue. Well, I, I think the the fact that you have so many people. I think in the most recent Gallup, it was either Gallup or ABC Washington Post that had, you know, two thirds of Americans are dissatisfied with the way things are going in the country these days. Um, and uh, of course, if you ask these questions, it breaks out very heavily along party lines. Um, I, I believe I, I saw recently um, a breakout of people who believe things are on the right track or the wrong track based on which candidate they like in the primaries. If you like Hillary Clinton, you generally think things are going pretty great. Um, and part of that is because Democrats nowadays with a Democrat in the White House have a more positive view of the economy and overall situation, while Republicans are more likely just to say, I think things are going on the wrong track. That even if there's a Republican who objectively has a better standard of living now than they did six years ago, that objectively is better off than they were six years ago, that they're still very likely to say, I think things are on the wrong track. Um, And I think that's paired with you have had a lot of folks that have made promises about, I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to fight the establishment. And it's not that they get to Washington and they sell out. It's that the Constitution doesn't allow one individual person to completely rewrite how the government works. And so in response to frustration, a lot of folks have found a lot of success saying, vote for me and I'm going to stick it to the guys who are giving you all of these problems in a way that is hard to achieve given a political system that is built for slow and deliberate action instead of speedy revolution. I mean, you know, people are so pessimistic now. I mean, it's never been true. I've been doing this for 20 years, you know, that in a focus group, people say, you know, there's. Good job, Congress. I think Congress is doing a great job. I mean, maybe they'd like their own member of Congress and they've always had bad views toward Congress overall. But now people say that they would vote for to remove every single member of Congress if they could. If they could vote to get rid of every single member, I think over half or about half say they would. Um, and that includes, you know, and if that means their own person, then good riddance. I mean, it, the the you know, the the negativity has really come to a new low. The sense that government dysfunction is uh, taking over Washington. It's t- tied with the economy, according to Gallup, in terms of a problem uh, facing the country. So, 
you know, it's much harder sell for people to say, vote for me and things will get better because people feel very pessimistic that they, you know, they're, they have to rely on each other. They, they don't feel that they can rely on, on government. And that's a challenge for anybody running for anything. But isn't that exactly Sanders' pitch right now? I mean, I guess, you know, well, I mean, it's true, I suppose, if you look at the exits and entrance polls, that in both the Democratic and Republican primary, people who are angry are voting for Sanders or they're voting for Trump in their respective primaries. I, you know, I mean, I would argue, and it's hard for me to, I guess, to take out my, take off my blue hat here, right? That, you know, the, you know, the Sanders folks, I mean, there's, there's a trust in government, right? There with implicit as part of the Sanders message, right? Like, think there's a foundation that's wrong. Once we fix that, then we can trust government as opposed to Trump that's like, you know, well, I'm just going to tweet my way around this, you know, governmental problem. So, um, so I think there's that sort of difference. I mean, I wince at the comparisons between Sanders and Trump, you know, cause I, for obvious reasons. But, um, uh, but I, you know, I think that sense that can we fix government? I think the Sanders pitch is more optimistic than the, than the Trump pitch. And maybe that's its appeal to younger voters. I'm not sure. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, this has been a live episode of the Pollsters podcast here from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, your host, uh, joined here with Margie O'Mero. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Pollsters and individually at, at K Soltis Anderson and at Margie O'Mero. You can also find us at www.thepolsters.com and we'll look forward to having a full episode for you later in the week. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.